This is The Neutral Position, hosted by Nick Palmashano, Bringing honesty and reason back into conversation. Here's your host, Nick Palmashano. Unpleasant or repulsive, especially in appearance. Adjective. The word is ugly. No, we're not trying to describe your mom or that terrible spring break decision you made back in the day. We're talking about the most heinous, eye-bending, gag-inducing, dog-chew on the planet. We're talking about ugly chews. To you and me, ugly chews are nothing to look at. You see, when you take cowhide, clean it by hand, and sun-cure it with no chemicals, it doesn't look like a cute dog bone or rawhide, but it also doesn't sit in your dog's stomach forever or cause digestion issues. So while we see a hairy mess that we don't want to touch in any way, shape, or form, your dog, the natural predator that he or she is, yes, even Mitzi the toy poodle has some wolf DNA in there. That dog just sees gorgeous, delicious, healthy nature. So when you're at the pet store scanning the aisle or you're online ordering the next tasty morsel for your canine companion to gnaw on, are you buying that cute bone or that rubber toy for you or for your dog? Because in your dog's world, that pretty, chemical-filled, tied-in-an-adorable-bow treat is a 6 out of 10. Tops. It's fine. It'll do. But it doesn't inspire. Why? Because to your dog, it's not natural at all. It's foreign. It's manufactured. It's a frozen dinner when you really want a perfectly cooked steak. In short, it's just not ugly enough. So if you want to give your dog the experience of a lifetime while Dreamweaver plays and the world moves in glorious slow motion... Then get your dog an Ugly Chew at UglyChews.com. That's UglyChews.com. Hey guys, this is Nick Palmashano. Welcome to The Neutral Position. Today is a first. We have our first judge. And not only our first judge, but a member of the North Carolina Supreme Court, Justice Phil Berger. Thank you so much for being on Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, Nick, thank you so much for having me on today. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. And uh, so, I, so I'm just a uh, uh, guy from small town, North Carolina, who uh, uh, happened to find himself on the Supreme Court. I, I don't think that's the way it works. Well, I, don't, I don't think it's like, <laughs> ah, I fell into a hole. Oh, my God, I'm a Supreme Court justice. This is crazy. Yeah, I, so I, I um, uh, went to UNC Wilmington and uh, from there went to law school, graduated from Wake Forest and uh, settled in in a small community with uh, the family law firm. Uh, my, my goal always was to go home and work with uh, my father and my brother. Mm-hmm. Uh, was able to do that for a short period of time. And then uh, my dad had some other interests and pursuits that, that he was involved in. Uh, and um, uh, opportunities sort of presented themselves, uh, ran for district attorney in this small community and, and was successful, uh, and then uh, progressed up through, uh, through the um, uh, court system uh, as first an administrative law judge, uh, judge on the Court of Appeals, and now uh, judge with the Supreme Court. I mean, that's a pretty awesome journey. So you, you come from a family of attorneys. Did you expect, did you always expect that you were going to be an attorney? No, my, my goal was to be a high school history coach and a baseball co- history teacher and baseball coach. And uh, that was sort of my path until about my junior, senior year in uh, college. And then it, it just sort of, hey, that, I think I might have a talent for this. Uh, so I, I started applying to law schools and uh, that was not uh, a pleasant experience. Uh, I ended up getting rejected by 
uh, just about every law school I applied to. Uh, so I had to had to take some steps, do some work, um, improve uh, on, on uh, uh, some things, and eventually got accepted uh, at a law school up in Michigan. So uh, my wife and I uh, get married, and about three or four weeks later, we we take off from North Carolina to to, to move from, to Michigan. That's not a that's not an easy transition. Michigan is a is a cold place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, much different from North Carolina, that's for sure. Um, Talk a little bit about, you know, and I don't want to call it failure, but talk a little bit about the setback of expecting to get into law school and not getting into law school. Mentally, where, where are you there? Uh, well, so, so it, it's sort of uh, discouraging, I, I guess is the best way to, to put it. Uh, you know, you, you'd sort, I'd sort of put my, my eggs in that I'm going to be a teacher and a coach um, and, and, and had not really prepared for an alternative. Uh, but I thought I thought with some of my scores and my grades that that getting into law school wouldn't be a difficulty, uh, but it turns out it was. And why was it? What do you think was the reason it was difficult? Well, so my my LSAT scores were not what they they um, uh, wanted, mm-hmm. and uh, you know my grades in undergrad were pretty good, but but the LSAT score just didn't set me apart. And that's one of the things that um, I, I think a lot of young people. Uh, miss out on or don't don't get focused on it is uh, your competition no matter where you are tend to have the you all look the same on paper Absolutely. right so what do you do to set yourself apart and unfortunately uh, during during undergrad I hadn't done a lot to set myself apart so that's why that transition period between uh, graduating uh, and and starting law school was so important for me is, is I was able to, to take some steps uh, to improve not only uh, what they saw on paper, but my ability uh, to be successful. So, you know, you're a youth coach, and I want to get into that, but, but you know, you, you just touched on something that I kind of want to bring up. There is a lot of pressure on kids, I think more pressure than when we were kids by a wide margin, to essentially have it all planned out at the age of, like, 15. You know, it's like you're going to – you have to get good grades. You have to do honors classes. You have to get a good SAT or ACT or whatever score. You have to get into one of these 12 schools that, you know, mom and dad or the community says are the best schools, um, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's almost like like a, a 15 to 20 year roadmap that, that kids are being fed. I find it interesting and not at all, not unique, actually, that that plan wasn't perfectly smooth for you, but yet here you are excelling. And so I want to maybe get your opinion, you know, as a, as a youth coach to kids that are on a path, whatever that path is, they're going to hit speed bumps and, and how you deal with that. So if you could talk a little bit about, you know, comparing your journey, but like really talking about, you know, in those moments, how you rally yeah. I, so, so one of the things I try to impress upon uh, uh, my players and, and law students, we, we have a healthy uh, internship program as well, uh, is, is that you are going to face some sort of adversity in your life. And, and whether, whether it's the, the death of a loved one at an unexpected time uh, or, or a roadblock, uh, as, as you mentioned, that comes up in your path uh, on, on what you see as your career journey, um, at, at some point you've got to have the discipline uh, to overcome it, you know, you you are you are going to face that setback, uh, and the question is, how do you respond? Mm. And and there are a number of people who um, just have not 
faced adversity or, or when they do, they're permitted to uh, sort of wallow in, um, um, in, in that discouragement and they don't take the steps necessary uh, to propel themselves to, to a better future. Now, for me, was that law school? Maybe, maybe not. I could have used that uh, as an excuse uh, to perhaps fall back on positions that, I, I, that would not have brought out the best in me. Mm. Uh, but, but I think we all have that sort of internal drive. Uh, we, we know that there are steps that we need to take uh, to improve our path or our course or our position. Uh, and, and, you know, at, at some point, you've got to trust yourself to do that. Uh, there, there is a better future. Uh, there is a different path, but you've got to have the courage to take it. And, and br- you know, bringing that back to me, uh, my wife and I could have stayed in North Carolina and uh, had a pretty good life doing um, whatever at that point in time. Mm-hmm. But the courage to to move away after yeah. being married a couple of weeks and uh, go to a, an environment where we knew no one, um, you know, and then be disciplined about how you go about reaching your goals. You talked a couple times, you've mentioned the term wallow. So I, I think this is something that's important to you and I'm, I'm sure that you, you impress upon your athletes. Talk about what that means, the danger of wallowing. Yeah, so you get caught in your head Right. And, and I think, at least for me personally and what I've observed uh, in other people, is it's, it's a form of selfishness. Right. It's some sort of self-centered uh, attitude that the world sort of owes you something mm. uh, and uh, that, that it's up to others uh, to sort of set you free uh, of this, this trap that you're in. Or this, yeah, if only someone give, would give me a chance, if only they appreciated me, if only it's dangerous. Yeah, and, and, and so what's your focus, right? Is it an internal locus of control, right? I have control over my, my own destiny and the mm-hmm. steps I have to take, or is it an external locus of control that other people uh, can, can sort of um, uh, either commiserate with me or allow me to stay? And, uh, you know, I just, I, I, we, we tend to be our own worst enemies. Yeah. And uh, if, if we're disciplined and, and goal-oriented, uh, you can get out of some pretty deep spots. My dad used to say, like, anytime that, you know, my brother or I would uh, complain about something or kind of like, oh, the ref or, you know, whatever, he used to say, you know, it, like, take responsibility for literally everything that happens to you. Because if you don't take responsibility when things go wrong, one, you can never change them. But two, you also internally will not take responsibility when things go right. And you start becoming a person that things happen to instead of a person that makes things happen. And so I, I think about that all the time with my kids. And I, when I say my kids, I mean not only my own children, but the, the kids I coach. I do not let them make excuses for themselves, but I also don't care what the result of their athletic endeavors are. And I know that sounds weird, uh, my kids have generally been very good at sports. You know, I have a daughter who's uh, an absolute assassin on the wrestling mat. Uh, you know, I've got a I've got a son that also is kind of following in that footsteps. And my older two sons were very good at the sport. And you know, I've got a son that's a great fencer of all things. He started fencing his senior year because he wanted something to do that you know in a season when he wasn't doing a sport and you know qualified for nationals like. So they've had these journeys and they have done well for the most part, but I, I want them to succeed for them 
if they put the work in. But in a weird way, like when they don't put the work in, I don't really want them to get lucky. I want them to learn the lesson of like to beat the best people at whatever it is, you have to work harder than they do. So the result doesn't incredibly matter to me, but I do want to make sure that when they get off the mat or they get off the track or they get step off the football field, that it's not, if only so-and-so had done whatever, I would have succeeded. Like, nah, you can't. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Um, Kenny Monday's an Olympian that, uh, you know, he used to, he coached at UNC for a while. And I had the pleasure of, of sitting down with him. He was the first um, black uh, Olympic gold medalist for the USA. And his, he has a very simple mantra in life, and it's just winners win. That's it. Like, that's, you know. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I find it interesting. And I, I kind of want, wanted to, you know, hear a little bit about your, your journey from not getting into law school to the Supreme Court. I find it very interesting because you've had, you've jumped around a lot. So you, 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 be, you get into law school um, and then you come back and you're in family practice. How do you end up as a DA? Well, during the course of uh, my, my work in private practice, I, I obtained the uh, contract with the local Department of Social Services to do their abuse, neglect, and dependency cases. Those are uh, children have been abused, mm-hmm. um, problems with parents, and, and at that point, the government steps in. And, uh, you know, sometimes those parents are successful in getting their, their children back or completing plans and that sort of thing. Other times they're not. And uh, so that's a tough line of work. Oh, it is. It, it is. Um, whether, whether you're representing the department, the parents or, or the child in that situation, um, it, it's taxing. It's it's emotionally taxing and difficult work. Absolutely. How, but, how do people end up in those situations? Because to me, I can't imagine anything other that is more important than taking care of my kids. Yeah. You know, so at the end of the day, it, it has to do with choices. Right. And discipline. And, and unfortunately, we have individuals who have um, made the choice to uh, not get an education uh, for one reason or another, made the choice to uh, begin using drugs uh, to sort of drop out of being productive members of society. And those decisions, one by one, catch up with them. And, uh, you know, wh- whether it's an, an unintentional situation where you leave a child with uh, a make a bad decision about a poor caretaker mm-hmm. uh, or you make the poor decision yourself. Um, um, you know, there, there are a lot of reasons that, that those, those sort of, um, things snowball. Uh, but, but unfortunately you tend to end up in, in, in a bad, sp- bad spot with uh, the legal system. You've, I'm sure seen countless situations where, you know, you, you've seen iterations of people in front of you as a judge in a, in, in these bad spots. Is, are there, are there common threads? Like, can you see like in advance where something is heading just because you've seen so many iterations of how people end up in front of you? There, there are a couple of um, things that, that I would point to. One is domestic violence. Uh, domestic violence is a, an indicator for um, uh, failure on a number of levels, whether it's uh, that particular generation or, or down the line. The, the other thing is poor education, uh, you know, decisions not to stay in school. Mm. Uh, we, we just, especially in rural North Carolina, uh, we, we still, so I grew up in a mill town, right, where, where the attitude was I, I can drop out, 
uh, and work eighth in the grade mill. and go yeah, to the mill. Yeah. Um, that's not the situation any longer, uh, but there are a number of people who still um, uh, see that their grandfather, grandmother were able to do those sorts of things mm-hmm. uh, and, and think that uh, they, they can too. Just, yeah. just can't do they it. They don't like school, so yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, but you know, if, if you were to go sit in Superior Court uh, one day, the sort of the felony court, uh, and just listen to the defense attorneys or, or the defendants talk about, you know, what should happen to them and why. I think one of the common threads is uh, very low education uh, mm. achievement. Do you think the lack of trade schools nowadays le- like has led to that? Well, so so yes, uh, but in a little bit uh, of, of a nuanced way, I, I think um, uh, we have put so much focus on you have to go to a four-year school. Uh, and, and we have uh, not emphasized that, that you, can, you can engage in some of these uh, uh, career paths, uh, you know, plumber, welder, those sorts of things, and, and be uh, not, not only a productive member of society, but a very wealthy member of society. Mm-hmm. Um, th- th- those individuals, mechanics, are uh, so in high demand now, uh, and they make good money, but, but for whatever reason, uh, our, our schools don't uh, don't equip uh, our, our our children to go down that path. Could you talk just a little bit about what your role was in, in those courts with, with those domestic courts with the families? Were you defense attorney? Were you a prosecutor? Can you talk just a little bit more about that to Nick? Yeah. So in um, the abuse, neglect, and dependency realm, I actually did all three roles at one point. When I was wow. uh, when I started out, I was representing parents um, and and just you know, tremendously difficult situations. Also represented parents who were attempting to adopt the children who are in the system. Mm. Uh, there, there is a position called guardian ad litem, mm-hmm. and the guardian ad litem speaks for the child in the court. So I represented uh, the children at one point, uh, and and that that was um, perhaps the most enjoyable role uh, in, in that court. You're able to to talk with the children or talk with individuals about what's best for this child. Uh, and, and you're not dealing with people who may be um, um, less than receptive uh, to um, uh, suggestions about how they should live their life and parent mm. their child, uh, but, but you're able to have a positive voice for the child. And then I represented the department, which is uh, a role where you are advocating for either removal of the child, some sort of different placement, adoption. Mm. Uh, and, um, you know, that, that's a tough role because at the end of the day, and that, that's in, in many respects, equivalent to a death penalty uh, type situation for that parent. But at the same time, I mean, if you're not taking care of your kid, you know, you can't put kids back into a dangerous situation right you know, over and over again. But it's got a way on you, though, because I'm sure I'm sure there are some where it's like this is such a no brainer that I don't f- you're sleeping like a baby at night because you took the kid out of just the worst situation. And now they at least have safety. Right. And, and that, but I bet there's some that are very gray where it's like, man, I don't know which way these parents are going to go. Are they actually going to adjust their lives because of this? Or, you know, it's got to be hard. That's hard work. I don't envy you. It is. No, they're, you. they're difficult cases. In, in North Carolina, uh, basically the parents have about a year, um, for the most part, have about a year to um, uh, sort of correct path. And uh, if they do, then the results tend to be uh, positive for both the, the parents and the child. Mm. Um, if, if not, then, then there are steps that are, re- that are taken to, to make sure that child is safe, whether that's adoption 
placement with a family member um, or, or uh, some other measure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, usually if you can't correct for your child in, in, in about in a, a year, in a year. That's, yeah, that's a lot of time. To, right. Yeah. But I, so I, you know, I'm in that court and we have a particular case that comes through and, and, and I notice there's a disconnect between sort of what I'm seeing uh, and what's being prosecuted. Uh, so, so that, that sort of, um, uh, differentiation did not make sense to me and some other people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so that's what led to the decision to, to run for DA. Interesting. And so you, you run for DA, not something that you planned or something that was in the back of your head? Um, not planned. Okay. In fact, we had encouraged, um, at, at the previous election, we'd encouraged someone else to run. Mm. Um, and, and again, one of those situations, nobody steps up. And it um, would seem something that my talents were suited for and decided to take that step. So in TV shows, DAs are, are you know, fast. They're either fast talking, uh, evil guys bent on, you know, political uh, aspirations, or they are uh, the only one that's trying to do the right thing. So which of those two were you? So I, <laughs> no, so, so I, I used to uh, do um, uh, presentation, uh, presentations for the DA's conference. Okay. I, I served as president of the DA's conference, and uh, so I'd have these slideshow presentations that, that started out with uh, Mr. District Attorney, the comic book from the 30s that was based on uh, the, the Dewey Defeats Truman. I did not know yeah, that so, there was a district attorney comic book. Yeah, so, so I would start out the <laughs> presentation. now I need to have it. Yeah, so, so it's uh, Thomas Dewey, uh, the, the famous DA from New York. Uh, not, up, not the Dewey Decimal System. Guy. No, not that I'm aware. <laughs> but, but I, so I would start off with this uh, poster of, of Mr. District Attorney slugging uh, some, some criminal. Yep. And I it would start off with, uh, you know, I bet you didn't think you'd see a superhero today, but, you know, here I am. Um, now, I, so, so we, were, we were very much focused on a couple of different areas. One, child sexual assaults, mm-hmm. uh, which is, again, part of the reason that, that I ran and uh, was, was very fortunate to create a staff that, that was focused on um, um, prosecuting those types of crimes. Uh, and, and then reducing gang crime. And I know people are probably wondering, what on earth kind of gang crime would you have in rural North Carolina? There's but, gangs everywhere. Yeah, and and the the spillover from uh, Greensboro, some other municipalities, uh, would would surprise a number of people. But but we engaged in, in a program called Project Safe uh, with the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office, where we focused on gang members and recidivists. And uh, so those were really the two two big things that I, I was hoping to accomplish while while DA. And how how was that role? It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Right. Uh, it, it, it is it is good to That's wear the white hat. That's not the reaction that I expected. I've never I've never thought of it in that way. So what what makes it fun? Well, yeah, at the end of the day, right, you, you are on the side of protecting innocence. And if, if you believe in liberty, if you believe in the Constitution, uh, you have a role to play as, as a prosecutor in preserving liberty, whether someone is unjustly charged uh, or there is a victim of crime who needs help. You know, at the end of the day, your your job is to um, carry out the law and do justice, and and being able to to function in that capacity in the courtroom every day um, is enjoyable. Now, are, are there headaches with it, just like every other job? Sure. Um, yeah, of course. Yeah, and and 
so so it, it it's frustrating at times, um, or it was frustrating at times uh, when um, uh, you know there there are arguments over uh, discovery or charging decisions where you know ultimately. Uh, the, the prosecutor has the final say in, in what gets charged and why. Mm. Uh, but but that was that was an enjoyable role um, to be able to 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 play and, and and I think we I think we helped the community in doing it. Because that role really sets the precedent for what the fairness of that county or you know is going to ha- have as far as law goes. Right, the district attorney is the person that's really saying this is what the law is and. We're going to take care of the right people, or we're going to prosecute the wrong people, right? Absolutely right. And and the prosecutor is the only person in the courtroom who's charged with doing justice for the community. And so the the community norms at, at the beginning uh, of the process are set by the prosecutor, and at the end of that process, the people uh, as the jury uh, set those norms. And mm-hmm. and so so to be able to to again play a role in and hopefully improving the area that I grew up. I, very proud of the work we did. So you never intended to become a judge. No. Talk about how you ended up there. Uh, failure, right? So, so a, a common theme for me. <laughs> failure is. Uh, um, it's I, a common theme for me too. Yeah. So it's, it's. So, so I had a decision to make at the end of my uh, second term um, as DA. There was a position op- that opened up uh, where there was an open seat for Congress. Uh, decided to run for that. If if you were to believe, uh, you know, say Dewey defeats Truman. If you you were to believe everything you read, um, uh, that's an election I, I should have won mm-hmm. uh, nine times out of ten. Uh, unfortunately, I, I was not successful, and uh, that that sort of put me in a, in a difficult place where I had to send out resumes to people. You know, I was unemployed, yeah. and uh, uh, many many people would probably say unemployable uh, <laughs> as well. But um, so I had to start looking for a job and, and a position came open uh, in Raleigh at, at just at that time as an administrative law judge. And, and I know your your viewers and listeners are going, what on earth is an administrative law judge? Right. <laughs> yeah. uh, but but agency interaction with with people, if you're a law enforcement officer, training and standards um, so that you can either keep or. Um, um, obtain your certification. Got it. Uh, if, if you're trying to open a business, maybe there are some uh, environmental issues that you're facing. So, mm-hmm. so how the government actually interacts with people um, on, on a daily basis. And, and those claims go to an administrative law judge at some point. So I did that for uh, two years. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think um, one, of the, one of the reasons that uh, I got that job was my work as, as a prosecutor, not not for the results that, that I had received and, and we had obtained, uh, but for the skills that I had obtained in being mm. a courtroom every day. And what they needed um, from an administrative law judge was someone who could try cases. And um, I, I had that ability, just mm. not from, from the bench, yep. uh, but, but was able to step in and, and handle some of the more complicated uh, cases that, that came, through, uh, came through that agency, which was uh, quite a bit of fun. Uh, to, to be able to handle uh, and, and be trusted with those types of cases. How different is it to be on the other side? So, you know, you've spent at this point your whole career, you know, arguing cases, and now you're deciding cases. How do you, how does that feel? Um, well, it, it, 
So at first, it's a very um, uh, awesome responsibility. Uh, e- even though I never wanted to be a judge, it's one of, you still have respect for the position, sure. and, and uh, uh, judges tend to have a pretty good reputation in the community. And, and you think, oh, wow, that's um, it's sort of imposter syndrome. I, I can't believe that I'm stepping into that, that position. I, I assume, too, if you're a decent person, you really are trying to do the right thing. It's really weighing heavily on you that you are adjudicating the facts correctly and, and you know, making good decisions. That Absolutely. has to be a different feeling because I, I, as an attorney, it's you go in there, you try your best, you, you put the effort into whatever it is you're arguing, but at some point the responsibility is on the judge or the jury. But now this is a different responsibility. And, and I think being an administrative law judge first was um, important to my development because, again, I had no background in admin law, mm. right? So, so every case that came, some experience with law enforcement and, and uh, sure. certification, obviously, but, but for some of the, the meatier cases, I had no idea what the law was, right? So, so to have to... Um, so you have to uh, teach yourself. At, at every point. Yep. And uh, so, so without those sort of biases and um, those backgrounds, I, I think I think that probably made me a better judge long term than, than stepping into uh, a role where, mm-hmm. hey, I'm hearing criminal cases all the time. Yeah. So, so I think I think um, uh, that was actually beneficial to me. Uh, made I, I think it made me a better judge. I was going to ask if you don't mind how hard it is to remove biases when you're like having to judge a case and like make a decision if there's like a lot of like your own personal feelings or not that you get too involved but like if you hear something that's really emotional like you have to step back like how hard is is that for you well so so i'll give you two answers to that one you know in law school we're taught to argue both sides right so so no matter um uh how compelling or how um um, emotional uh, an argument maybe we're we have sort of a background in how to how to be objective right and would you say that you have to adopt a neutral position <laughs> <laughs> sorry that, no, I, I had, to, I had to. that's that that was really good um <laughs> i wish i had thought of that <laughs> but yeah so I, you have this background in arguing both sides uh and, and then the the other i I, ju- I just believe if you cannot separate um uh your personal beliefs from the ability to apply the law, <clears throat> then, then I think you need better or different judges, right? Uh, judges with agendas are, are advocates and they're not judges. And, and that's one of the problems uh, that, that we've, uh, or at least people uh, perceive with the judiciary across the nation is uh, they're, they're more advocates now uh, than there used to be. Do you think that's the case? Because this is, I always wonder, I, I, you almost... I hate I hate to say this, but you almost can't take, you know, news reports or news commentary at face value anymore, right? You know, uh, there's a lot of newstainment and a lot less news than there was, you know, a generation ago. So do you believe that there are more advocate judges now, or do you do you think this is just kind of a hyped up political infighting kind of thing? Like, you know, kind of throwing accusations back and forth. So, so I think um, 
there there is some measure of uh, politicization of the judiciary. Mm-hmm. I, I think absolutely, but but I think that comes from perhaps a, a little bit different uh, point of view or a different uh, arena, as government grows and expands and its tentacles sort of get into everything. Uh, where do people turn for redress for any grievance? It's the courts. So, so judges perhaps may not be more political. It's that they are handling more political issues mm. because our, our government just continues to expand without seemingly uh, any end to it. Um, I have to ask this because you kind of opened the door to this a little bit, but um, Merrick Garland, right? When uh, he was not voted on for the Supreme Court, what are your feelings as a as a judge for that situation? I'm just curious. Yeah, so so there are rules in place that deal with filling vacancies, mm-hmm. and uh, it, my recollection of that situation is uh, uh, those rules were followed, and um, um, you know it, it, it's unfortunate for him individually, but in terms of the system and the process, the system and the process worked uh, as it was supposed to. So I, you know, I, I think if if you're an objective observer. Um, you you could always be upset with what took place, but objectively, sure. um, yeah. Were, I mean, objectively, both parties have done it. You know, both parties have have paused on the nomination in order to to get their guys in. I just, in general terms. So f- let's take Merrick Garland out of it. Let's just say that you know you think it's appropriate. You think I'm asking. You think it's appropriate to kind of say, well, we got three months. I'm gonna pump the brakes and make sure that, you know, we, we get our guy. Well, I, I, I do because what, what is the remedy, right? The remedy lies with the people, right? You can't do anything about that particular nomination yep. or individual, yep. but if the people are upset and, and the fount of all power in our system is the people, uh, if, if the people don't like it, then they have the ability to vote out uh, or vote in members of Congress. So, so again, process-wise, I have no problem with yeah. it. I, I agree with that, but I do, I do think, though, given that it is then a lifetime appointment, I think that's where people would argue it, you know, is that, okay, yeah, you can vote the person out, but the, the justices stay in. So, you know. Right. Well, and, and so, so had, you know, you look at it from the other side, um, is there a, a significant backlash for... Um, uh, the Senate for moving that nomination at that time. You know, may, maybe they, so, so uh, you know, ultimately people have to make difficult decisions uh, with the exception of federal judges. Most of us are accountable to the people and uh, those decisions um, have consequences. And, uh, you know, it, I, that, that's sort of the genius of our system, that, that ultimately the people are in charge. Imagine a media agency that can make a documentary that qualifies for Academy Award voting. Imagine another that created a billboard charting music video for Five for Fighting. Imagine another that has raised so much money for nonprofits in its first year working on the classy.org platform that at the end of the year, it was named as only the second marketing partner in Classy's history. Imagine another firm that can cover your events anywhere on planet Earth and provide a compelling series of videos about those events immediately and to your needs. And imagine another still that can help your e-commerce business take it to the next level. Now imagine that they're all the same business. Diesel Jack Media.
Some of you might be saying, hey, Nick, isn't that your company? And to that I answer, can a company like Dieseljack Media really be owned? Or can it merely be coaxed out like a beautiful butterfly on a spring day? As you listen to this podcast that, by the way, Dieseljack Media created, you may be asking yourself, what's our secret? It's simple. We try not to suck. Sounds easy, right? It should be. But somehow, marketing companies and media agencies always seem to get it wrong. You see, we don't make PowerPoints about doing work. We do the work because we like the work. And if one of our ideas doesn't work, you know what we do? We try another one again and again and again until our ideas start to work. Because not quitting until it's right is at the heart of not sucking. And as previously mentioned, that's what we try not to do here. Diesel Jack Media, we try not to suck. Visit us at dieseljackmedia.com. That is dieseljackmedia.com. So taking a step back before we go to, you know, becoming an appeals judge, why'd you want to run for Congress? I, I thought I could contribute. Um, I, I have a great deal of respect for um, people who uh, put themselves in front of the public and uh, declare positions and, and then have to defend those positions. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think doing that at the federal level is very appealing, uh, or at least was very appealing, uh, because ultimately your tool, uh, what you are using to help people, uh, is and should be the Constitution. Um, I, I like to think that I have um, at least some knowledge of the Constitution, and I thought that I could do um, some things to halt the growth of government uh, and, and protect rights. Um, but the, the good thing about the way things work out is now I get to use the Constitution every day to protect rights. And, and so, um, you know, again, it, we, we all think that we're cut out for, for certain things and uh, the people um, uh, get, get the final say. Would you ever run again? No. Like 100%, no, no desire? Not no. at all. And, and so, so one of the reasons is, is quality of life. Um, I, I have no interest in trying to raise $50,000 a month or you know, $80,000 or whatever that figure is, uh, and my phone ringing off the hook uh, 24 hours a day um, every two years. Uh, I, I have an eight-year term uh, here in North Carolina. Our, our um, Supreme Court justices serve for eight years, uh, and it's one where I can really focus on the Constitution and the law uh, and, and be an advocate for uh, rights mm -hmm. um, without, without, dis, without just destroying my family to do it, you know? I absolutely understand that. You, you talked, uh, you've mentioned a few times about the growth of government, the degradation of rights. Do you believe that to be a real threat? And, and you know, how do you see that coming to fruition? Well, nationally, absolutely. Uh, that that as, as government grows, your rights decrease. Sure. I mean, that's fundamental and proven throughout history. One of the exciting things uh, on the state level and, and, and something that people don't consider often is there is a state constitution that is often um, uh, a, a little more robust in the protection of individual rights, uh, such that government uh, may not be as intrusive or, or should not, cannot be as intrusive as the federal government. And, and serving as a state Supreme Court justice, being able to um, use that tool uh, that, that you know, has, has been in existence since 1776 here in North Carolina um, to, to help people 
fight for individual liberty, fight for economic liberty, um, and, and do it in a way uh, that um, uh, is consistent with the Constitution. I, that's just very exciting to me. How does, you know, I, I'm not an expert in this regard, how does the North Carolina Constitution protect rights perhaps, uh, you know, more deeply than the U.S. Constitution? Well, ju- just one example, right? So in the, in the federal constitution, uh, we have, um, you know, that, that your rights to life, liberty, and property uh, are expressly, expressly protected. In North Carolina, we have a little bit of a different uh, uh, take on that, uh, that, that your life, liberty, and the fruits of your own labor are protected. Mm. So, so what are the fruits of your own labor? And, and I think if you have to go back to John Locke, think, uh, to get a real appreciation of what that, that means, right? So it's, it's not only, oh, I get to go to work and, and do these sorts of things. There, there are cases in North Carolina uh, that, that say it's, it's the work you put in and the growth you get from that work that you're mm-hmm. entitled to without government interference. And, and so, so again, I think that, I think you could probably argue that property as the founding fathers of the federal constitution uh, intended uh, would encapsulate that. But in terms of an express protection of the fruits of your own labor, you know, those are the types of rights uh, that, that are here in North Carolina and, and a couple other constitutions um, that, that it's, it's just a rich area to uh, to protect people. Very. That, that's really interesting to me. Like you, you typically uh, as a as a layman, I typically think of the U.S. Constitution as being the arbiter of, you know, individual liberty and I you don't typically think of the states as supplying additional liberty so that's an interesting uh, interesting perspective which states do you think are leading the charge in terms of individual liberty and which states do you think are you know just two two or, or one or two of each that are uh, maybe uh, doubling down on the direction of the federal government well, I, I think objectively and without going into any legal issues, there are a number of people who are moving to Florida now, and, and I think uh, that that has a lot to do with liberty interest. Uh, and there are a number of people who are moving uh, not only to North Carolina but Texas in, in fairly equal numbers. Uh, but, but I think Texas is a little bit ahead of us. But, you know, with, in, in terms of our court, um, you know, I, I think we have uh, uh, a court that is uh, protective of individual rights, and it's something that uh, should should attract uh, the business community, and uh, because you've got certainty and dependability, and and you can if if you're going to expand a business, you know, do you want to go to an area where there's certainty in the law, uh, or do you want to go to an area where uh, perhaps there's potential for upheaval? And uh, so I, again, I, Florida, North Carolina, Texas, and and you just look at the U-Haul. Um, information about who's who's moving out, and uh, that, that gives you an idea of sort of where uh, rights may not be uh, uh, viewed as protected as much. Yeah. <laughs> he, he doesn't want to say it. I will. I, I do just because you know this. This is never an easy topic, but I we talked about it recently, uh, you know, on a show, and I, I wanted to bring this up to you because it was a question that was posed to me. So, you know, on the abortion issue. Um, individual rights in that regard in Texas and now potentially in North Carolina are, you know, it's a discussion point. And so, you know, where do you see, you know, from a legal standing, I'm not, I'm not asking, you know, for personal opinion unless you want to get into that, but from a legal standpoint, how do you adjudicate 
that, you know. So if we're if we are providing individual rights um, in terms of property and speech and you know the Second Amendment and so forth, but you know this is on the table and a constant, you know, uh, uh, sore in the side of America. So I'm going to give you a politician's answer to this okay. one, okay? Right. And I I'm apologize. Ready. I'm ready. So so. We have uh, the Code of Judicial Conduct here in North Carolina that says we cannot uh, basically stake ourselves out uh, on a case that uh, or issue that might come before the court. Got it. So uh, because of the Dobbs decision that pushed uh, those issues down to the states, mm-hmm. uh, there's the potential that that issue could come before me. So I can't speak on uh, anything uh, abortion related. Okay. All right. Well, hey, I appreciate it. I had to ask. I think. I think Quiggs here would have been upset with me if I hadn't asked. <laughs> um, yeah, so that, you know, that in general terms probably makes it very hard to have a number of discussions. So you have to be very guarded in, you know, all kinds of discussions when you're having anything. Now, does that, is that true for private discussion as well? Um, depends. Right. I mean, we all we all have uh, sort of individual discussions with people. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm and, sure you, can, you can speak to your family about how you feel on different topics. But, you know, if you're in a business setting with a group of 12 people, can you have those conversations or you're you have to no. keep, you have to keep it to yourself? Right. Interesting. Yeah. So, That's, but it does make it um, interesting when when you have to campaign again in North Carolina. We stand for election. We have to go in front of the voters, mm-hmm. and and judicial campaigns are, are as boring as you can. Ever. I, I will be fair. I will follow the law, <laughs> and I believe in the constitution. Mean, everybody uh, has those sort of three things down. And there have to be, you know, going back to what Julia was asking you before. You know, if you are an impartial judge, there have to be times where you don't like the law, but you have to rule in accordance with it. How, yeah. do, you, how do you deal with that? Um, it's, it's tough. And I, I can give you a concrete example of that. And it's one that you, you may be personally familiar with. There, there was um, uh, a special needs uh, charter school here in North Carolina. And, and prior to becoming an administrative law judge, uh, I, I, my, my son went to a charter school. Uh, I was active in the charter school movement, uh, but but we had so so charter schools get their ability to operate from the state of North Carolina. Uh, in that operation, there there are certain uh, benchmarks and, and um, um, hurdles that they have to to meet or clear. Uh, and if they don't, then they get placed on a sort of probation. Well, this particular uh, charter school was chartered to meet special needs children's needs. Mm. And uh, unfortunately, the administration did not take the steps necessary to, to clear some of the hurdles, and the state moved in to shut, um, to shut the school down. That case came to me as an administrative law judge and uh, had to hear it. And it's very difficult because just from a special needs children's perspective, um, if you disrupt their daily activity, their daily life, some of these kids have been in the school for three, four, five years, mm. um, that... That, that's something that, that weighed on me heavily. You know, if, if this school gets shut down, these children are, are just going to be um, a tremendous amount of upheaval. Um, but at the same time, the law was very clear that if, if that school did not meet these benchmarks, then uh, the state had to step in and shut them down. Uh, so ultimately, that's the decision I, I, I made, uh, consistent with the law uh, and the facts of the case. But it's one that bothers me to this day, and that was, that was eight years ago. You know, it's it. Um, I mean, it's tough, but and and 
you know, over the course of, of, of a career, you sort of get used to making decisions and moving on. And um, that that's one I I would not do differently, but I wish I could have done differently. I, yeah, to- totally understand. Totally understand that. All right. You become an appeals uh, court judge, which you did not anticipate. Right. Uh, and talk about that transition and, and uh, what the difference is from the administration judge to the appeals judge and, and how you have to think about that differently. Well, we, we had uh, about November of 2015, um, somebody who was running for the Court of Appeals um, dropped out. And um, the filing period was in December, very, very short uh, mm-hmm. turnaround period. I started getting phone calls saying, hey, you really should look at this from, from a number of people and told them no. I, I was not interested in um, running for office again, didn't want to be on ballot, those, those sorts yeah, of things. Yeah, it's yeah. Still, still an open wound from, uh, sure. uh, from the congressional race. And um, You were wallowing. I, 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 was, uh, <laughs> I was not in the best frame of mind wallowing a little bit, yeah. Uh, but, but eventually uh, people convinced me um, to, to do it. And, um, you know, it, it, was, it was a good decision. Uh, again, I think, I think my experience in private practice as a DA, all of those sort of build on each other. And then becoming an administrative law judge, um, just, you know, you don't see it at the time. But, but it opened uh, a number of doors and a pathway that I never never expected. So talk about the challenges of being, you know, an appeals judge. I mean, that's a different, now you're, you're really getting into nuance, correct? I mean, I, I, again, I'm a layman, but you're, you're assessing the quality of decisions from other judges, you know? And I'm sure some people take that personally. So talk about the challenges of that job. Well, it, it, so the difficulty for me is it was my background, mm-hmm. right? So, so I uh, come from, I'm going to argue in court. Um, the law is pretty clear on, on the positions that, that I'm arguing. Uh, I've got this whole new body of laws, an administrative law judge. Uh, but now I've got to um, really understand the law and be able to explain it. Right, because if you're in a courtroom, you can you can uh, make an argument or ruling, uh, and 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 just sort of move on. But mm-hmm. uh, here, you have to sort of show show your work, and and that for me, at least initially, was was difficult. Um, you know, coming from a background where we didn't have to write uh, a lot. Again, we just argue in court. Sure. Um, so so that transition was um, uh, not very smooth, uh, but but it, it it's very much like law school. And, um, you know, so if, if you can go to law school and do you then do you need to put out a written opinion for literally every case? We do. And do you have do you have clerks and whatnot that help with that the way the Supreme Court does or not really? We do. So so at both the Supreme Court and the Court of Appeals, we have two law clerks and an administrative assistant. And the, the law clerks are just so important in helping us draft opinions, understand uh, the arguments of the parties. Um, uh, my law clerks made made the transition much easier than it would have been otherwise. Talk a little bit about like, and I don't know if you if you're allowed to or not. Again, um, but what was one of the more challenging uh, cases you had to work on, and, and how how much time goes into developing that opinion? So one of the more challenging uh, opinions at the Court of Appeals. Um, 
was was a homicide case that, that had occurred, you know, 15, 16 years prior. And um, it, it had, the, the case had gone up and down, up and down. So so just trying to imagine the record, right, all of the information that, that had been generated from the trial court uh, and the appeals courts on that case, just trying to handle the record on something mm-hmm. like that is very difficult. Um, but but there, there was a, a, a situation in this particular case where um, it had come back uh, because someone had claimed there was newly discovered evidence, right? And, and there were affidavits and testimony dealing with this newly discovered evidence that didn't quite fit with what the record was. So, so over the course of about, probably about six months, I mean, I went through every bit of that record, um, every bit of testimony, uh, every bit of the affidavits that were submitted, and, and um, wrote an opinion that probably about 60 pages uh, as, as to why this didn't qualify under the law as newly discovered evidence. So, so um, you know, that, I realize that that's a very specific uh, uh, example, but it's one that, that I think is important because it would have been easy to just go, oh, this is newly discovered evidence, and, and mm. toss it aside and said, oh, go right ahead. Uh, but but because both uh, myself and my clerks sat down and really um, understood what had taken place, uh, it, it was it was easy to point out some of the flaws uh, in um, in the trial court's decision below, and and in doing that, um, you know, at, at least in the short term, we were able to uh, I, right. So so on the on the on the other side of every homicide case, there's a victim and a victim's family. Mm-hmm. Right, and, and so we were we were at the very least able to um, uh, let the victim's family know that look somebody's somebody's looking at this, and and I'm very very proud of that. So then, how do you go from the appeals court to the Supreme Court of North Carolina? I, again, just sort of by accident. Um, the the chief justice. I need to start having your kind of accidents. You know, my, <laughs> my accidents are like I fell down the stairs and like shattered a knee or something. Your accidents are like, yeah, I'm a I'm a justice in the Supreme Court. You know, yeah. like those are good accidents. Yeah. Well, and again, I, I'm just I'm the guy from rural North Carolina who just is lucky enough that the people said, hey, we we, we trust you with this, and and. I think that's an important perspective. You get a lot of people who, who get elected to office and it is, uh, oh, look at me. I, mm-hmm. I am filling the blank position. Yep. Um, I, I, I'm the guy from rural North Carolina who, who gets to walk by the George Washington statue every day on the Capitol grounds. And uh, the, the only reason uh, this happened was, uh, again, it was luck or accident. The, the individual who was serving as chief justice at the time decided he wanted to uh, take a position as law school dean. So that vacancy led to sort of musical chairs uh, on, on the Supreme Court. And there was a position that was open that um, we needed somebody to run. Mm. And this is, so, so again, this is uh, 20, 2019-ish, uh, end of 2018. And, and so the prospects at that time, this was not gonna be a, a good year for Republicans. I'm conservative Republican. Uh, we run partisan elections here, uh, and and again, it was hey, you really ought to look at this, and and it it, it seemed at the time as a fool's fool's errand, mm. right? Um, just polling and all those 
sorts of things. Well, as, as uh, eventually said yes and, and jumped into that process. And, um, you know, I, I think I have an ability to communicate um, uh, the, the more conservative judicial philosophy uh, that some, some others may. And, um, again, that's a talent that people um, saw in me. I, and I, th I think there is a disconnect. People don't understand – people really don't understand – the difference between being a conservative judge and being a conservative politician. These are not the same things. No. Can you talk a little bit about what it means to be a, a conservative justice? Because I think it I think it'd be helpful for people to hear it, at least from your perspective. Right. So so I think that has to do more with uh, judicial philosophy. Right. And and judicial philosophy now, uh, at least in today's age, tends to fall on 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 two ends of the spectrum. One is the, the living document um, uh, interpretive theory, and the other is uh, sort of originalism and textualism. And, and if you were to, to look, I believe the more conservative individuals who are more conservative are tied to uh, tradition of the court, um, original meaning of the Constitution, and fidelity to uh, the statutes that are passed by the uh, General Assembly. Right. So, so those individuals who have that sort of worldview or judicial philosophy tend to be seen as conservative, whereas uh, interpretive theory or um, uh, living document interpretive theory is um, uh, the, the Constitution is a living document and it changes with the times. So it can mean today whatever I think it uh, should mean, and tomorrow could mean something completely different. And, and, and so those tend to be, at least in the, the legal world, views, viewed as more liberal uh, judges. So, you know, in, in layman's terms, a conservative justice is one who believes the Constitution should be generally interpreted the way that the framers wrote it and their meaning at the time. Is that a fair statement? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And just, you know, for those of you out there, like it, 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 it just is not the same thing as saying someone is a you know, Republican or Democrat. It is, um, and you know, I, I was a big fan of, I'm weird. I used to read, uh, I still read uh, a lot of Supreme Court decisions just because I like to see uh, the structure of the argument. But I was a big fan of the way Scalia uh, structured a number of his, uh, his arguments just because like you could tell sometimes he, as a human being, did not agree with something. But you know, really did, you know, stay to what he felt was the meaning of the Constitution. Um, I found his relationship with with uh, Justice Ginsburg to be interesting, too, because they had such an appreciation for each other, but came at things from a completely different perspective. And it, it wasn't this, it sometimes feels that way, but it is not the same thing as I am a Republican politician or I'm a Democrat politician. It's this is the way that I view the Constitution and how, you know, I find it interesting. So I appreciate you explaining that to those of us that, that are not in the area. Um, I do have the most important question to ask you, though. What is the best law show of all time? Man, that was my question. Well, <laughs> I was going to ask if you watch Law and Order SVU at all. <laughs> what is the what, what, in your opinion, is the best law show that has ever ever been created. So it's got to be Magnum P.I. Right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, so, so we, we, we used to watch uh, Law & Order every night, uh, my wife and I, when we were uh, up in Michigan. And uh, 
Uh, so that's, that's a very good show, very um, uh, pretty realistic, and, and in terms of the law, pretty accurate. Um, there's some liberty. It'd be nice to be able to, to do all of that in 60 minutes, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but you know, I, I, I don't watch any of that anymore, but if Magnum P.I., the old ones are on, I, I'll, oh, there's Tom Magnum, that was that show, that show holds up. It really does. <laughs> it holds up, you know? It, it, and you... Th- I remember it as a kid, Magnum P.I. being campy. I always thought, oh, it was a campy, fun show. But now watching it as an adult, you realize it was really heavy. Yeah. Like, he was fun and silly, but, I mean, you know, he, he was covering post-traumatic stress when no one was talking about post-traumatic stress and issues of Vietnam and, I mean, all kinds of, like, really deep stuff that, you know, no one else had. I was going to say my favorite was uh, Boston Legal. That was my favorite. I don't know if you ever watched that show. That was with... William Shatner and uh, and uh, James Spader. It seems like I've heard of it, but I don't remember I'm gonna, watching. I'm going to get it for you. Okay. I'm going to send it. I'm going to send it so you can assess from a legal perspective. I think probably legally it's it's not great, but it was a, but it was a great film. So there, there there's a good one um, if if you've got uh, you know an hour and a half to to kill. It's called Star Chamber. And it's, uh, okay. Kirk Douglas. Great this, movie. This yeah. So this is what mid mid eighties somewhere in there. Like 70s. Did you work on that movie? No. <laughs> I was in America back then. It's about a, it's about a group of judges, right? Yeah, so the group of judges um, uh, look around and they see these uh, people getting off on technicalities and, and you know, in, in their opinion, justice is not being done. So they get together and they hire hitmen <laughs> to go out and... Uh, oh, yeah. oh, man. So that, that's... Uh, is that the direction you're heading? No, not at all. But uh, it, it, it's, a, it, it's a good movie. And, and one of the interesting things is if, if you if you were to watch it today and then just think about the law uh, that that's being applied back then versus where the law is now, yeah. there's some very stark contrast in what was uh, what is um, uh, permissible now versus what was not permissible then. How so? Uh, so there's one scene where uh, they, they go through the suspect's trash. Right. And and it gets tossed out because the cops didn't get a warrant for the trash can. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so now the, the law in that area is different. Uh, but, but there, there are a couple of little uh, nuances to the law that you go, Oh, that's, that's changed a little bit. Interesting. Mike Douglas, right? Yeah. Yep. What about LA law? You remember that show? I did. That was a little bit before my time. I okay. think I was, uh, you know, middle school ish. Remember LA law. <laughs> did you work LA law? Trial. I'm just checking. Brian Dennehy. Welcome to Arrest and Trial. <laughs> All right. So before we go into our, our rapid fire question round, which you get like 10 seconds to, you know, rapidly answer questions that are not very serious. Um, is there anything that you wish I would have asked you? that I did not ask you? Uh, the check the box initiative. Oh my God. How did I, yeah. We literally were talking about that before. Yeah. I have failed you. I have failed you. I have failed America. No. Um, so, you know, you, you have been involved in the veterans justice initiative. And one of the things that, um, you know, many people have said that, that, you know, you played a huge impact on was the check the box initiative. Can you talk about what that is and the effect that it's had? I was uh, listening to a podcast one day and Clark Pennington with the Independence Fund uh, was on talking about some work he had done in Buncombe County uh, with a veterans treatment court. Mm. 
And uh, essentially, uh, the the Independence Fund provides pre-sentencing reports for veterans who are charged with crime uh, in that community. And it, it just hit me, why don't we identify uh, the veterans who are coming through the legal, legal system, who've been charged with crime, who are asking for court-appointed counsel, and try to direct them to services through the Independence Fund. It is, it is not a heavy lift. Um, we, are, we are currently uh, in, in the process of negotiating with the administrative office of the courts, basically supervisory agency over the court system, to include this box. We've had a number of meetings where just I, I, I was previously engaged in military service. And by checking that box, that triggers um, communication with the, the Independence Fund um, so that they can provide these pre-sentencing reports, not just in one or two counties, but for veterans across the state. Because uh, we have five veterans tre veteran treatment courts here in North Carolina, and if we can expand this at little to no cost uh, to the taxpayers, um, it, it serves to provide a huge benefit, not only in the, in the legal realm, right? Because you have a judge or a prosecutor that gets this sentencing report mm -hmm. that gives details about background, criminal history. Uh, are they going to the VA for their benefits? Do they have their medication fixed? You know, those that information that would be critical to structuring probation uh, or maybe even a veterans deferral program with the DA's office so they don't get a criminal conviction. Um, so, so that that's sort of the the genesis of this, and and it, it appears to have a good possibility of moving forward. Very proud of it. What motivated you to do that? You know, why are you uh, so engaged with this project and with you know the Independence Fund, and why did you reach out and try to you know solve this problem? Just just an accident. I, I saw an area that perhaps there was a need. Uh, I reached out to. Uh, one of the individuals with that podcast and said, hey, what, what do you think about this? And, and he said, move forward. That sounds like a great idea. And uh, so, so from there, it, it's just uh, uh, multiplication of, of resources and, and manpower. Uh, North Carolina is a very good uh, destination for veterans. We, we are a veteran-friendly state. And you see that in, in the legislature. Uh, you've seen it with the help we've gotten from the court system and other judges. Um, uh, with this check the box initiative mm -hmm. and, and the public certainly wants to, for, for people in North Carolina, it's a no brainer. North Carolina also seems to have, and I, you know, seems to have a very functional legislature. You know, I, it's not a legislature that is, uh, you know, like the, the federal government, you know, Congress, it, it, you know, Republicans are always going to vote one way and Democrats are always going to vote way and if anybody breaks ranks it's like a knockout drag out they're getting made fun of dragged they're on the news north carolina seems very reasonable like if there's a problem you know everyone seems to want to solve it now they might come at it from different ways but you know i've seen time and time again bipartisan solutions to lots of problems in north carolina um you know, with the Veterans Justice Initiative, you had 100% unanimous voting to put that initiative in place. And it seems like the same support is being garnered towards this initiative. Is that, is that, do you think that's unique to North Carolina? Or why do you think it works here where it doesn't seem to work on the federal level and, you know, and in other states? Well, I, 
you know, just the military presence that, that we have here with uh, Fort Bragg, Camp Lejeune, uh, Cherry Point, uh, Seymour Johnson. I mean, a number of uh, military installations here, and, and they're, the veterans are part of the community and, and tend to take on leadership roles, whether they mm. run for office or active uh, in, in boards and organizations. So, so I think we have, uh, at least in North Carolina, the North Carolina I know, uh, a very deep appreciation for the sacrifices that that uh, our military personnel have uh, made for us, and uh, most of us are, are uh, uh, related to a veteran in some way, shape, or fashion. And um, again, it was just it, it's when when I heard Clark talk about this, uh, it, it seemed like an easy um, solution to help a number of people who who really need it. I, I, I think it's tragic. Uh, that that we have the veteran suicide rate that, that we do, and if if you listen to uh, some of the more modern uh, or updated numbers, uh, it's closer to about 25 than than the 22, uh, and and I think that's a problem we can solve if we get in early, not solve completely, right, but address uh, if we can get in early when when people get uh, hooked on drugs or make sure. some very poor decisions and yep. wind up in the criminal justice system. And they see this as another situation where there's no way out. Well, the, the independence fund, uh, seems to have done a really good job, uh, in, in these small pockets. Let's see if we can take it, uh, to, to a broader, broader audience and, uh, make it work. That's awesome. And I, I appreciate your contribution, you know, towards this endeavor. So thank you very much. For, oh, no, for that. I, I'm, like I said, I'm very proud of this, have a passion for it, and hopefully uh, th things continue to progress. And then, you know, I have to call out that you are currently drinking coffee out of a, a charter member Range 15 account. So the only way to get this mug is uh, having donated to Range 15. Um, these were never sold, and so you grabbed one and decided to drink out of that instead of a, a more generic, either a Diesel Jack media mug or, you know, I'm, I'm going generic today. Um, you are, I believe, the first guest to come on the show that has actually watched Range 15. And uh, I specifically have had to promise to Sarah Verardo that I will not show people Range 15. <laughs> She's never watched it, but she just has a, a, a assumption that it's terrible which is not a poor assumption. Um, you know. What's your favorite part of Range 15? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, I probably shouldn't answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> How do you lose a position? Of this program, <laughs> it, it, it is a very colorful movie. Um, I have a twisted sense of humor, um, probably from, you know, just having my head in, in books and paper all day. But uh, no, it's, it's um, I like comedy. Right. And um, I don't I don't know if that necessarily qualifies as comedy. Or what, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I'm a big fan of those guys. Can you, can you quickly just tell us how the check the box thing works? A, a veteran gets arrested. What, what, how does the whole process happen? Is it on a arrest form? Is it on some other kind of form? Can you, you mind just telling us that? So so with the check the box initiative, when um, an individual is charged with a crime and they go to court, uh, most people fill out uh, an affidavit of indigency to try to obtain a court-appointed attorney. And uh, that is where this box would be located. Now, will it capture every veteran that goes to court? No. Traffic offenses uh, would not qualify. Sure. Um, some other things. But if you're charged with um, uh, something serious yeah. crime, 
we want to be able to um, identify that individual and hopefully get them uh, triggered with services because um, that that that's the contact point where people first admit they need help, mm -hmm. right? You can, you can be arrested by a law enforcement officer and, and jump up and down and protest and, you know, this isn't fair. Uh, but when you get to court and the judge says, I need you to fill out this affidavit, that's the first time where anybody, you know, if you, if you confess to a crime, right? But that's the first time where anybody is really saying, right, I'm going to need some help to get through this process. Got it. And, and that's, that's a good point for, for a veteran to go, you know, I'm a veteran. They don't necessarily know uh, what, what the second part of that is. Mm. Uh, but, but it, it, it's a, it's a cry out point essentially. That's great. All right. With that, let me ask you, is there anything else that I should have asked you that I have not asked you at this time? No, I don't, I don't think so. You good. I didn't, oh, yeah, I didn't no. drop any other balls, you know, cause I take full responsibility for not asking about the, the check the box initiative. Cause we, we talked about that and I definitely wanted to bring that up. Are you ready to Julius Caesar your morning? Warpath Coffee is just for you then. No matter if your morning consists of fighting Blackbeard's crew, squaring off with the alien from Alien, defending Gotham, or maybe just going to work as an accountant, Warpath Coffee has you covered. Creating the best gourmet coffee is what they do. So why settle for anything less than that? Did I mention that all orders over $60 in the U.S. come with free shipping? Well, I guess I just did. Ha <laughs> ha! Mention it, and I'm glad I did, because if you do the math on this, you could order your entire year's worth of coffee and not have to pay for shipping. I'm just saying. Visit warpath.coffee. All right, with that, Quigley. I had to toss out my lot. TV show question. There you I'm go. I'm so sorry that you weren't <laughs> fast enough with your question. All right. The first question I always ask uh, someone, and keep in mind that, you know, the youth sports teams that you coach are probably listening. What is the toughest animal that you could defeat in hand-to-hand -hand combat? Oh, a uh, dog. A dog? Dog. Any particular kind of dog? You want to get specific? My, my yellow lab. Yellow lab. Okay. That's a, I mean, that's a reasonable... We've had everything from uh, can't defeat a house cat to uh, we had one guest that thought they could take a lion. So, you know. Yeah, good luck. So, so you know, I think I think that was a reasonable answer, right? Like well, a, it was reasonable, and he did it within 10 seconds. Yeah, it was quick. All right, here we go. Here we go. What do we got? All right. Um, since you study, I never know what these are, by the way. These, these come from the team. Since you studied history in college, what major historical event are you most passionate about? Um, the creation of beer by the Egyptians and the perfection <laughs> by the monks. Okay, this is our best question. Ever. <laughs> you want to just cut it right there? <laughs> All right. Um, what is your go-to karaoke song? Beer in Mexico uh, by Kenny Chesney. All right, this, the follow-up is we need 10 seconds of you oh singing Oh, my gosh. It. Oh, uh, really? Well, I'll, I'll just sit right here and yeah. have another beer in Mexico. You got to sing it. You got to sing it. Come on, <laughs> let's, let's do this. Well, I'll just sit right here and have another beer in Mexico. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna cut them at three seconds? All right, all right. <laughs> all right. It was Sorry. good. It was good. It was good. It's all right. If you were supreme leader for a day, right? So 
for one day and one day only, you get to enact any change in this country that you want, and it sticks after you are no longer supreme leader. What is that change that you're making? Uh, Detroit Tigers are perpetual world champions. (laughs) (laughs) Well, all the Detroit fans are are going to love you. You guys embrace Detroit. Let me, let me tell you, going to the old Tiger Stadium and sitting in the bleachers was, was a lot of fun. All right. I know, uh, based on our conversations thus far, you're probably not going to want to answer this, but I implore you to answer. What law school is the most overrated? Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, I, you know, so I seriously, I can't answer that. We had a judge <laughs> who, uh, no, seriously, we had a judge who made a comment um, uh complimenting a particular law school and the got reprimanded um, because you're not supposed to play favorites. Right, Quigley, which one do you think is the most overrated? Yale. All right, there we go. Quigley says Yale. All right, what has been the best age that you've lived thus far? 50. How come? Um, so I, better shape than I've ever been in my life. And... Um, uh, just the experiences I had dur- during that year were a lot of fun. I ha- have, have a kid that's a, a senior in college, one that uh, went on to uh, as a freshman in college and, and just that transition period as a parent. Um, it's been a, it's been a good year. What's a case that you've had that's so wild that it could have been a TV show? Oh, oh so, so we had, uh, I, I can only tell part of this. Um, <laughs> We, we had uh, these two individuals uh, break into a mausoleum uh, and engage in sexual intercourse. And um, um, that's as far as I can tell, because there are some other details. All right. We don't need the, yeah. we don't need the other details. All right. <laughs> Who would play you in the movie of that case? Um, Paul Giamatti. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Hey, that's a good one. Um, if you weren't in the law... What job would you have? Uh, what, what job would you have that you think you'd love? Uh, baseball coach. I, I wish I had um, uh, pursued that perhaps a little bit differently. All right, last one. What would your younger self think of who you are today? Completely shocked and, and amazed. Awesome. With that. Uh, Justice Phil Berger, thank you so much for being on. Um, really appreciate all of your insight, sharing your journey with us, and uh, letting us know how this whole crazy court system works. And it sounds like a lot of work. I, I would much rather be asking you questions about it than, than doing it. And uh, I'm going to get you a copy of uh, Boston Legal so that you can assess it so that we know is it the best law show of all time? I say yes. Thanks so much. No, thank you, Nick. I appreciate the opportunity to be here.